Hello, and welcome to the next in our series of podcasts looking at the background to that fateful day, July the 19th, 1545, when the Mary Rose sank in action against the French fleet in the Battle of the Solent. In our last podcast, we spoke to Professor Susanna Lipscomb about the European politics of the day, the fickle nature of alliances, Henry's excommunication by the Pope, and the ego of the two monarchs of England and France that led to the French fleet setting sail for England. Today, we'll focus more directly on the battle itself, but we'll also aim to remind ourselves of that immediate context and talk a little bit about the aftermath too. I'm in the boardroom of the offices of the Mary Rose Trust. I'm here because set out in front of me on the boardroom table is a very important picture that depicts the Battle of the Solent, including a sunken Mary Rose. To explain why this picture is so important and how it helps us understand the battle, I'll be talking to Dr. Dominic Fontana. Dominic has spent many years researching, analyzing and interpreting the image and is a leading authority on the battle itself. So rather than me continuing to explain what we'll talk about, let's get straight into the conversation. Hi Dominic, great to see you. Hello Adrian. Hi, so uh, as I say, before we actually start to talk about the battle itself, let's just rewind the clock briefly to the year before, 1544, when Henry decided to try and bloody the nose of Francis, the King of France. What, what was he up to at that point? Well, he amassed a huge army and fleet and took his army across the Channel from Dover over to Calais, which at that time was an English possession. Firstly, his intention was to uh, attack Paris and topple Francois, but Charles V, who was uh, in alliance with him at the time, backed out of the deal. And so Henry was left sitting there in Calais with a large army, lots of troops, lots of munitions, lots of supplies, and he needed somewhere to go. So they set off to lay siege to the town of Boulogne fairly close to Calais, um, but very much a desirable place to hold if the English wanted to have much more control over the English Channel. So he'd set out to capture Boulogne. Um, he did so in September of 1544. The town was ransacked by the English troops and indeed the various mercenary troops that were with the English on that uh, occasion. And it really caused considerable damage and hurt to the town of Boulogne and also to the people of France and to uh, Francois Premier, the, the King of France. At so that the, time. the mercenary troops, were they brought in from abroad? or many, many of them came from places such as Germany. Certainly Henry had orders for large numbers of mercenaries to arrive um, to join his forces in France. And but is that because there's not enough troops available in England itself? Um, well, uh, at the time in England, um, they had enough troops, but you'd really want to get as many as you can. Sure. And they'd need to be trained and equipped the mercenaries would come trained and equipped. It's one way of converting... So they're professional soldiers. They're professional soldiers. Right. And it's one way of converting Henry's riches into power that he can exploit on the battlefield. So the obvious question now, I suppose, is how, how did the King of France, Francis, feel about losing Boulogne? 
Well, Francois was um, very upset, uh, definitely, at losing Boulogne. Um, it had big implications for the Pas de Calais region of uh, France. So it was yeah. a, a strategically important Strategically place important yeah. and strategically important for the control of the English Channel. Um, but it also had other effects in that uh, the people of the town had been severely traumatised by the uh, siege and the, the, the ransacking of the town. So, so Francis, Francis was very upset, but yeah. couldn't actually do anything directly about it at that point. But that then leaves Hen Henry with a, a significant problem, because he's now got a much increased area to defend on the French mainland, on the European continental mainland, where he's going to have to keep quite a large number of troops in place simply to secure the perimeter. Mm -hmm. um, because any diminution of his own uh, troops would mean that the French would push the English back, sure. possibly completely back over to, to England, so taking Calais as well. So Francis is obviously upset by Henry taking Boulogne, but he also sees this as an opportunity. He does indeed, because it means that Henry's army is occupied in France, and that rather leaves England relatively undefended. So Francis sets out to build an army and a, a fleet to come over and invade England. He does this in cooperation with the Pope, uh, and the Pope contributes galleys to the fleet that will come across the Channel. Um, he also contributes sailors and men. Um, Francois puts together an army of about 30,000 soldiers. Wow. In Tudor terms, that's a lot. Um, and uh, that really produced a very big threat for England in 1545. Mm -hmm. Very much as a consequence of Henry's action in the summer of 1544. So a progression of Henry's aggression against Francis and Francis then seeking to use the opportunity of a less defended English mainland um, to get back at Henry. So then, obviously, he also assembles a big fleet. Absolutely. Um, Francois's fleet uh, comprised of about 225 ships, and they were assembled during the early part of the summer of 1545 at... Uh, La Havre on the French northern coast. Mm -hmm. Henry equally started to put together his forces and to begin to amass them at Portsmouth and the Solent. And he'd managed to get together about 60 ships. So there's a huge imbalance. Very much so. But Henry has the fortunate advantage that he doesn't need to transport his troops by ship because they can make their way to Portsmouth by foot and by horse. Um, so he doesn't need quite as many. He's also defending uh, a relatively tight waterway um, uh, of the Solent, uh, whereas the French have got to bring everything with them and they're a little more exposed to the elements out in the English Channel. Sure. Equally, Henry's got a very severe problem which is that because his main army is in France still, didn't come back at the end of 1544, it remained defending the, uh, the English holding in uh, the Pas de Calais, um, 
around Boulogne and the town of Calais itself. Uh, so he didn't have his main army here to defend England or to defend Portsmouth. So all those expensive mercenaries are stuck in France? They are. They're not here. Right. And that really causes something of a, an alarm through uh, the English court that they are left with some troops who are equipped and uh, trained, but the majority of their manpower are farmhands and militia. People who are less than 100% perfect if pushed into mm -hmm. a severe hand-to-hand -hand battle. Sure. So the scene is then set for a very difficult um, problem for Henry, but equally a significant problem for Francois um, because his fleet has to get over to England and it then needs to land its army. Right. That's a tricky thing to do. Sure. So where, where does he try and land his army? Well, the, if you're coming across from Le Havre, the obvious point to aim for is the Solent. Mm -hmm. It's a sheltered waterway. It has ports at Southampton and at Portsmouth. And both of those ports have deep water quaysides where you can tie up a large vessel and discharge your soldiers ashore. Now, the problem with that is it means that you have to take the ports of Portsmouth and Southampton in order to be able to land your troops. Which are now being defended by Henry's fleet. Absolutely. And Henry's fleet started off sitting out at Spithead in the middle of the Solent and provided they stayed there, the French fleet really couldn't pass. So, Dominic, this would probably be a good point to actually start looking at the Cowdery engraving now, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. The thing that the Cowdery engraving is, is the most fabulous pictorial record of the Battle of the Solent. Um, originally, it was done as a wall painting at Cowdery House at Midhurst in Sussex. Um, and it was about 20 feet long, so it really was a huge image. Unfortunately, we don't have the original image anymore because Cowdray House was destroyed by fire in 1793. Right. But what we do have, and this is extremely fortunate, is an engraving that was made for the Society of Antiquaries um, before the original was lost. Um, and it just is the most fabulously detailed picture. It certainly is. I think at this point we should just pause and say, by the way, it's also on display in the museum as a, a huge projection, uh, one of the first things that you see when you come into the museum. Um, so it's entirely relevant to be using this image to talk about the battle. Absolutely. And, you know, right at the centre of the image, we have the Mary Rose having sunk um, to the bottom of the Solent. And we also have Henry VIII himself shown riding on horseback towards South Sea Castle. Right there in the middle. Right there in the middle of the image. Yeah. And just behind him, also on horseback, we have 
Charles Brandon, 1st Duke of Suffolk, who was in charge of the land, Henry's land forces at Portsmouth on the day. And we also have Sir Anthony Brown, who was master of the king's horse, and so was in close attendance to Henry whilst he was riding uh, over to South Sea Castle. Now, the original wall painting was painted for Sir Anthony Brown. Who lived at Cowdery House, hence the name the Cowdery Engravings. Exactly. Okay, so, so let's start talking actually about the battle itself then. Uh, what, what actually happened? How uh, to, We ought to culminate, of course, in how the Mary Rose ended up sinking, but what, what was the lead up to all of that? So the French fleet arrive off the eastern end of the Isle of Wight on the 18th of July, getting on towards the evening probably, but enough time to be able to anchor the fleet and prepare for the following day. And, and this is the group of ships that we can see at the left-hand end of the engraving. There's a whole mass of ships just sitting off the eastern end of the Isle of Wight. Then you've got the English fleet, which is to the centre and the right of the image, filling up the whole of the area of Spithead, which is the central Solent, which is used by the Navy even today as an anchorage. Mm -hmm. So Henry had amassed his 60-odd ships out in the Solent at Spithead. Those that were in Portsmouth Harbour itself are shown on the picture as leaving the narrow harbour entrance and going past the round tower on the right-hand side of the image. So they're all heading out to block the path of the French fleet through the Solent. Sure. So you've got lots of English ships with guns. You've got lots of French ships with guns. And nobody's really at that point used artillery from ship to ship. Okay. So this is new. Nobody's really thought any of this through. Nobody really quite knows how this is going to work. And is that because the two countries had developed naval gunnery almost sort of simultaneously? And the, the gunnery has developed right across Europe. Right. And indeed, many of the guns on uh, Henry's ships were provided by Italian gun founders. Okay. Um, so it's really a very European affair um, <laughs> with armaments and uh, equipment supplied literally from all over Europe. Um, so the French have a lot of ships, they have a lot of troops, mm -hmm. but they can only really get as far as the eastern end of the Isle of Wight. Okay. To land their troops, they need to get these deep water quaysides in Portsmouth and in Southampton. Sure. But to do that, they'd have to get past Henry's English fleet. And that is not an easy proposition. Because the English ships are well equipped with large guns. There are iron guns, there are bronze guns. They can do an awful lot of damage to any ship that attempts to enter the Solent and to try to make their way past up to Southampton or through and into Portsmouth Harbour. So you have a situation in which the French uh, want to come into the Solent, 
the English are staying in the Solent and the French can't get past them. On board the French flagship, they've also got another problem, which is that Francis didn't come with his fleet or with his army. He stayed in France. An absentee monarch. An absentee, <laughs> indeed. Okay. So in charge of the French fleet and landings was the French Admiral Claude de Annebeau. And he was really charged with making the decisions necessary to deliver the blow to Henry's forces. But he hasn't really got the means to do that very easily. He does have an advantage in that he is well equipped with um, oared galleys that have been sent by the Pope from the Mediterranean. But in the Solent, their ability to row gives them a really big advantage over the English, whose ships were mostly wind-driven. Okay. And especially on the day of the battle, the 19th of July, 1545. It was a Sunday, and it was a day when the weather was hot. Typical summer high-pressure weather system mm -hmm. sitting over the Solent. And in those circumstances, you get almost no wind, particularly in the morning. Mm -hmm. And so the English ships, even if they'd wanted to move, couldn't do so because they had no means of propulsion. Without the wind, the English ships simply cannot move. So we have this situation in which Claude Danabo, in charge of the French attack, can send his galleys, his Mediterranean galleys, powered by their oars, in to attack the English ships. And the English ships can't move. And they're at anchor. They're at anchor, exactly. Now... The thing about that is that the galleys are equipped with large bronze guns that fire directly forward. Okay. They fire straight from the bows. Wherever you point the galley, that's where you're firing at. The English, on the other hand, can't control the attitude of their ships in relation to the French because of the tide. And in the morning of the 19th of July, 1545, the tide was running from the east to the west. Okay. And that means that the English ships, all held on their anchor cables on their bows, are held bow on towards the French. As they're shown in exactly the Exactly as they're here. shown in the Cowdray picture, yeah. yes. Now, the thing about that is that the English ships are equipped with broadside firing guns. Mm -hmm. They can fire to the port side and they can fire to the starboard side, left and right, but they can't fire directly ahead. So they're vulnerable. So to... they are vulnerable to a head-on attack yeah. by the galleys, which can manoeuvre because of their oars, and have forward-firing guns. So that the galleys can basically run in directly to the bows of the English ships, particularly at the vanguard, the front of the English fleet, yeah. loose off their bronze guns, do a swift turnaround, 
and make their way back to the safety of the main French fleet. And, and the English fleet is not really able to respond to that. The English fleet would have huge difficulty in responding to such an attack because the galleys are essentially low in the water, they're fast, and they're coming directly ahead. So the English will have real difficulty in bringing their guns to bear. So they could have kept this up for uh, several hours. Because the tide is because still the in tide their favour. is very much in their favour, rushing them in towards the English ships, allowing them to turn and then row hard away. The English couldn't do anything about this at that stage. But we know that the Mary Rose got herself underway late in the afternoon. So probably about four o'clock in the afternoon, and five o'clock. quite literally when the tide started to turn? Well, the tide would have turned um, at about one o'clock in the afternoon. And it really changes the battlefield in a very dynamic way. Because instead of the tide running a current in from the east to the west, it now shifts and runs from the west to the east. Mm -hmm. That means that the English ships then have a current that would favour them making an advance towards the French fleet. And at the same time, under the weather conditions of our high-pressure system in the summer, you almost always get a sea breeze blowing up from the Isle of Wight in, in the afternoon. Usually happens at about two or three o'clock in the afternoon. And that would give enough wind to allow the English mariners to get their ships underway and control their direction of travel. Yeah. Because a big sailing ship is very difficult to steer unless you can get some speed through the water. Sure. Um, their rudders are small. They don't have any power ability. So they have no engines, so they have no ability to easily change direction other than by using the sails and the wind. And indeed, we can see from the engraving that there are billowing sails going forward. Absolutely. And also, Adrian, if you notice, in most cases, they're on the foremast of, of the ships. So they're using the wind as a means of getting that directional control as well as getting some motive power right. to be able to um, head across the Solent. And what the Mary Rose will have done is made a passage to bring her starboard guns to bear on the attacking French galleys and making a passage northwards across the Solent heading in roughly the direction of South Sea Castle so that she could head back across the Solent and then across the Swashway Channel, which goes across the sandbank on the entrance to Portsmouth Harbour. Mm -hmm. A very precise manoeuvre. And it's really interesting that where we found the wreck of the Mary Rose is exactly as it is depicted on the Cowdray engraving so take us through the, the rest of the battle. We've, unfortunately, the Mary Rose has, has been sunk. What happens after that? How did the battle conclude? The battle ended up being really rather inconclusive, um, partly because of uh, the way events had gone. 
The French had made some landings on the eastern end of the Isle of Wight, and in fact we can see you've got um, two small boats going into Bembridge Harbour, and there are some figures of French soldiers being chased down back towards the boats. Now, that's fascinating because it was part of what was happening um, and is recorded by the French as, as being part of the tactics that went on, making these landings on the Isle of Wight with the intention of perhaps capturing the Isle of Wight and holding it as a stronghold off the coast of England. Now, it did come up later in their discussions on board the um, French flagship with Claude Danabo, the Admiral, that they could try and hold the Isle of Wight through the winter of 1545 so that they could apply a lot more pressure to Henry and his court. But they also decided that that wouldn't be easy to do simply because they couldn't provide them with enough food and wine to keep them going through the winter. Wine being particularly important for the Absolutely. French. Absolutely. And on the Isle of Wight, because the population of the island was only about 6,000, you know, to impose another 12,000 people on it would have completely overwhelmed its ability to supply food. So, so all in all, the, the, the French plan seems to be slightly flawed. They can't take the two ports of Southampton and Portsmouth that they need. They can't land on the Isle of Wight to sustain any form of invasion by troops later on. So, so what happens then? Well, it arrives at this point of um, enlightenment on the French that... Well, they've tried. They've made a jolly good attempt at attacking England. They've sunk, they would claim, the Mary Rose. I was just about to come on to that as well, because um, there is a claim about that, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, the French definitely do claim that they sank the Mary Rose. The English, on the other hand, suggest that this was down to incompetence amongst the crew. Um, personally, I do not believe that the the English crew were um, in any way incompetent. So we have this situation in which the Mary Rose has been sunk, the French have claimed it, the English suggest that it's incompetence amongst the crew, and it's not surprising that they would do that because um, from the shore side, they would have seen the Mary Rose simply suddenly shift over to the starboard side and they would have seen the foresail fly up into the air, and that would be at the point where the crew would cut the main cables that hold the uh, foremast and the um, foresail in position. Mm -hmm. So it really would have seemed as though there was a great gust of wind or something that had taken her down at that point. Interesting, okay, because of course that's one of the points of conjecture as Absolutely. well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. We have this situation then where the French fleet have had a good go at landing. They've loosed off some shot. The Mary Rose has sunk. The English fleet have engaged them. They know that they can't land their troops. They've had a go at the Isle of Wight. In a way, honour has almost been satisfied. Okay. Um, so so they tried their best. They tried their best. And Admiral Danabo um, was, I think, quite a canny politician. He knew that Francois was not a well man. 
Um, he knew that Francois was unlikely to last very long. He also knew that that was the same for Henry. Mm. And that perhaps wiser heads would uh, prevail if they just backed off for the time being mm -hmm. and came to uh, a political treaty. So it was inconclusive, but I must point out also that as alongside the sinking of the Mary Rose, the English actually managed to sink one of the French galleys as well. And indeed, that's also shown in the Cowdray picture. Just back from the front of the French fleet, there's a French galley with its bow down in the water. And I think this is the galley that was sunk by the English and is also referred to in a couple of letters between various members of the Privy Council that um, there was a Frenchman saved from a ship sunk by Blackie of Rye. Wow, okay. And taken to my Lord Admiral to be examined. So the next thing is the search for the French galley. Well, um, I've been doing a bit of work on that. Um, <laughs> as you can imagine, that would be the most fabulous thing to find. Um, but over a number of years, we've been carrying out some sonar surveys over the site, where I think it probably is. But it's a bit like looking for a needle in a haystack. For sure. Um, but you never know. Mm. And the, the real romance of that is simply having a look for it and to see if that tale is also as true as the rest of the stuff that's in the Cowdray engraving. The image is just so packed with stories and details and things that line up with other documentation. Yeah, and, and in the sense, as you said, that it's, it's very accurate, one has to believe that that would be the place where the French galley has uh, sunk beneath it, the waves. It is very likely that that yeah. is it. Well, I think, Dominic, that's a, a great point to, uh, to leave the story. Uh, it's been absolutely fascinating listening to you explain how the battle took place and uh, your conjectures about the Mary Rose being uh, hit by the French and so on. Really, really interesting. Thank you so much. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, whether or not a sunken French galley is ever found in the murky waters of the Solent remains to be seen. But of course, the Mary Rose was found, and the result of that was the famous raising of the ship in 1982, and subsequently the opening of the award-winning museum, in which the ship and thousands of objects found with her are displayed. And, as we said, you can see the Cowdery engraving there too, projected to a size of over 10 metres across for you to look at and interrogate via touchscreens. Come and visit. Tickets are available via the website where you can also make a donation. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed learning more about the Battle of the Solent and how the Mary Rose might have sunk. And please also take a listen to the other podcasts we have created, available via all the usual platforms. In the meantime, we look forward to welcoming you to the museum.